Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello, this is Michael Foley. I am the author of Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe, Christmas Traditions Explained. And you are listening to the Dr. Sky Experience on WABC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, the iconic radio show, The Dr. Sky Experience, heard on America's iconic radio station, Talk Radio 77, WABC, out of New York City and around the world, the crown jewel of talk radio. Great guest on The Dr. Sky Experience, and as we move into the holidays 2022, who better than a gentleman named Michael P. Foley to talk about his brand new book, Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe, Christmas Traditions Explained. But first, a little background on our very special guest. And then a little segue into some of the things that you probably knew and probably don't know about these great Christmas traditions. Dr. Michael P. Foley is a professor of patristics in the Great Text program at Baylor University, a professor of theology at the Aquinas Institute, and the author of over 400 articles and 14 books, including Drinking with the Saints, Drinking with St. Nick, Drinking with Your Patron Saints, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity. Mike and his wife, Alexandra, live in their adopted hometown of Waco, Texas, where they enjoy spending the Christmas holidays with their six children, 12 chickens, two turtles, one dog, and 12,000 bees. The name of the book here on the Dr. Sky Experience is Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe, and a little backstory on the book before we talk with our special guest. Everyone has Christmas traditions that make the season so special, but people rarely stop to think about why they hold these traditions so near and dear to their hearts. Author of the best-selling Drinking with the Saints, Michael P. Foley, delves into the history behind the season's favorite traditions in Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe, Christmas Traditions Explained. Without a hearty welcome to Michael P. Foley. Michael, good afternoon and Merry Christmas to you and your family. How are you? Thank you so much. Good afternoon and Merry Christmas to you as well. Wow, this is a one that knocks it out of the park. Michael, I know you are really outstanding. And I know we're looking for the same thing, and I guarantee it'll happen here because of what's contained in the books that you write. Drinking with the Saints was awesome. And so many of my friends that even those that didn't like adult beverages, they certainly appreciate all the backstory on these particular drinks in correlation to many of the great saints. But we begin this interview. I wanted to talk about something that I've been talking about, and we've gotten some scholars who also have talked about some of the theories. I've been going around the country on our shows you know, via radio and technology, talking about what we believe to be the origins of the great star of Bethlehem. But let's start off, as the book does, with the origin of Christmas, and let's say the Christmas star, the wise men. Give us a little inspiration as we move into the season, exactly more an insight into this particular story of how this whole Christmas season got started, at least from the Bible, as one who studies this uh, deeply. Oh my gosh, uh, where to begin? It. The history of Christmas is so 
wonderfully tangled and controversial, but it does make for a fascinating history. So we do have the infancy narratives, um, and there are critics who say the details don't all add up. There are defendants who say, no, you're reading it wrong. They do add up if you just look at this rather than that. Um, we're still not exactly certain when Jesus Christ was born. Was it December 25th? Was it some other time? Was it March? Um, the, I guess the thing that I learned from doing all the research is even if we can't prove a lot of these early Christian beliefs, nor can we disprove them. Maybe it is unlikely that December 25th was the birthday of Jesus, but it's not right. impossible, especially if you read the gospel according to Luke in a certain way. Mm -hmm. The chronology could very easily line up. So we shouldn't naively believe that Jesus was born on December 25th, but we should just as naively, just as not as naively believe that this is just, you know, a myth or a fabricated date. Interesting. A little backstory from you on the three wise men. I mean, I've tried to research this as best as I can and what I get out of it from other scholars like yourself. Three wise men possibly coming from, say, areas like what today is presently Iraq, maybe northern Iran, and maybe some even say farther out to the east. Uh, what say you as we move forward to talk about these great Christmas traditions? I have no idea. Um, you know, our, our best guess is that Magi were Zoroastrian priests and scholars, like you said, from present day Iran and Iraq. We don't know the number. Uh, in the, it just says Magi came to visit the infant Jesus. It doesn't say how many. So in the Greek Orthodox Church, I believe they hold that 12 Magi came the West, of course, has this tradition of three magi who represent the three, quote, races of the earth or the three descendants of Noah. And so you have Gaspar, Melchior, and Baltazar coming from different parts of the world. Exactly. You know, I hope every uh, talk show host has asked you this question, and believe me, I'm going to ask it. Define patristics to us, because I have never, and I'm always honest with the audience and honest with you, I've never heard the term before, but uh, you are the scholar of this, and, and define it so that everybody can understand it. It is not a well-known term, but it's a pretty simple idea. Patristics is the study of the early church fathers, hmm. and the early church fathers were the great Christian luminaries from the end of the composition of the Bible, so about 100 A.D., to maybe 700 A.D., so the first 600 years of Christianity. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit more about Advent. I mean, I was brought up as a Catholic and followed many of the rituals. You know, this isn't about me, but as an altar boy, I was old enough to have to, in the time period back in my time, the Mass in Latin was something that I tried very hard to know and, and had to recite. But Advent is so important to the Christian community. Talk about it and some of the early things like Advent calendars and Advent wreaths as we move toward the Christmas season. Advent is a wonderful time. It's, it's a very brackish season, if you will. It's this strange mix of penance and jubilation. Penance because we're getting ready for the Lord and His coming. Jubilation because the Lord is coming. So we're both excited and trepidatious, and our Advent customs sort of reflect that. 
our liturgies uh, have violet vestments, purple vestments. The Gloria is suppressed. There are other sort of signs of uh, sorrow. But on the other hand, the, the texts themselves and the customs of Advent are joyful and um, almost sort of giddy. So you mentioned two big customs, the Advent calendar, we're literally counting down the days to when Jesus comes, and the Advent wreath, which is now uh, a very popular symbol, um, started by uh, Lutherans in Germany in, I think, the 19th century, but has very quickly spread to Christians of all stripes. Wow. So much to talk about and so little time to do it. If you're just joining us, ladies and gentlemen, we're privileged and honored to have Michael P. Foley, author of many books, author of a book that we had him on and uh, knocked it out of the park, as always, the author of that book, Drinking with the Saints. He's here today to talk with us about a brand new Regnery history book that's available wherever good books are sold. The entitlement of the book, or the book entitled, I should say, Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe, Christmas Traditions Explained. And we're here to talk about these amazing traditions, many of which, as I read the book, uh, I'm just so amazed by as we get in to celebrate the birth of the Christ child here with our very special guest. And you're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience on America's iconic radio station. That is Talk Radio 77, WABC, out of New York City and around the world at WABCradio.com, the crown jewel of Talk Radio. Michael, thank you for spending some time in this pre-Christmas edition as we move forward to a new year, 2023. You know, you describe things like the Jesse tree. Never heard of it before. Describe it. It's something fascinating that people, it opens up our minds. The Jesse tree is a relatively recent custom. The idea behind it is not. The idea behind it is the family tree of Jesus. What is it? And of course, we get genealogies in the Gospels about the ancestry of Jesus. But it is a tree or a bush with different symbols of Jesus' ancestors, who is described, you know, his ancestors are described as coming from the root of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. And so there, like the week before Christmas, you'll start to put these ancestors on the tree, the Jesse tree, that is, as a way of building up to the birth of the Messiah. It's interesting. You know, one of the most powerful chapters that I get in the book, and all of them are outstanding, but the story of something that many people may not recognize, and, and the predecessor to maybe Santa Claus, and there's so many iterations, but give us a little more detailed explanation of, as you described the book, in the book, the real St. Nick, St. Nicholas of Myra. This, this is fascinating. I'm all ears uh, on this one, Michael. Please, please well, I this. really fell in love with St. Nicholas of Myra as a result of researching this book. Mm-hmm. There are two chapters on him. One, who he is, and then two, the legends about him that eventually morphed into Santa Claus. But he really was a great man. He was a Catholic bishop in present-day Turkey in the 4th century, and he was basically known as the people's champion. This was the guy who had your back. He protected you from unjust rulers who imposed heavy taxes, from people falsely accusing you of murder. He's most famously associated with saving three daughters of a poor man from prostitution, by oh. giving them money to have uh, a dowry for a proper marriage. So he was this great patron of the little guy. 
And then over time, his legends only grew and grew and grew. And there are some really colorful <laughs> legends about him from the Middle Ages. Wow. And then the huge shift happened in the early 19th century, when within almost 10 years, he suddenly morphed into Santa Claus. Amazing. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. So it's kind of, and I'm being serious, not to be funny, it's almost like having a court-appointed attorney on your side if you couldn't afford it for the poor who would want to defend you against uh, blasphemy and all kinds of things that were lies, innuendos, and what have you. In other words, a man who cared about people uh, beyond uh, what most people would ever imagine, correct? That is exactly right. And there's a lot of confusion. Uh, you, you mentioned your, your Catholic background, Doctor. Yes. There's, there's a lot of confusion at least among non-Catholics, about the nature of a patron saint. Because mm -hmm. you kind of look at it uh, from the outside and you think, well, this is some kind of arrangement for recovering polytheists, right? That mm -hmm. you used to pray to the goddess Diana for a good harvest, but right. you can't do that anymore, so I'll just pray to St. Agatha or, or whatever. Um, but the real impetus behind it is the patron-client relationship of the Roman Empire, Wow. A patron, just like you were saying, is a big shot. Yeah. He's an influencer in the town. And you are his client, which means you are protected by him. Mm -hmm. You pay him homage, and in turn, he has your back. Well, by the time you get to the late Roman Empire, the, the place is falling apart. And people are cynical about government officials uh, holy Catholic bishops and uh, kind of step in and take the role of a patron. The, you know, the Roman officials can't dismiss a bishop. They know he's important. And so he will step in to protect you when you are being attacked by, you know, the big government or whatever. Sure. Well, this is amazing. I mean, many of the things that happen, in other words, history repeats itself and the story that we're talking about here with St. Nick, but in a respectful way, but also in a way to bring people's minds to the attention of maybe more modern music. We're going to hear a rendition of the Beach Boys as they sing a very interesting song in the beauty of the holiday season, the song of Little St. Nick. And this is performed, of course, by the Beach Boys. Very apropos time to hear to celebrate in the joyous festivities of Christmas. But ladies and gentlemen, more important, our very special guest, Michael P. Foley, a book, not only the cover I just love, very Victorian, as we have the title, why we kiss under the mistletoe, Christmas traditions explain. Merry Christmas, Christmas comes this time each year. Well, way up north where the air gets cold, there's a tale about Christmas that you've all been told. Let me call little Saint Nick, but she'll walk it 
Michael, this is amazing, and it's a short read, and, and I gather, you know, I have to ask you the question. It's very simple. I mean, obviously, you were the scholar in the patristics, but why this book about Christmas? I mean, it's, it comes through in your voice that there's this great passion, so this compilation. I mean, can you describe it? You were sitting, let's say, with your family, or you're out somewhere fishing or doing something. One day, it just hits you and said, hey, I got to do a book about this. Describe that, that whole chain of thought. Well, I don't know if it was a single moment, but you're absolutely right. And of course, I'm not unique. As a kid, I loved Christmas. And I was always fascinated by the Christmas symbols. What other time in the American year do you have a season so chock full of symbols? And so I wondered about them as a kid. You know, why do we deck the halls with boughs of holly and not boxwood? You know, what's the deal about the Christmas tree? And why do we kiss under the mistletoe? Sure. So as an adult, you know, becoming a college professor, I developed, you know, skills of research and I was able to dig deep and get some answers to my questions. Amazing. Yes, it's a great read. And, uh, and that's a little, I don't want to call it a pocketbook. How would you describe it? It's in between that as a hardcover. It's just simply something that you can't put down. And everybody within the sound of this particular interview, uh, they definitely should get a copy of this coming to us from the great Regnery people, but it's Regnery History, and they can find this wherever good books are sold, but also at regneryhistory.com. Let's talk about the other things. This really opened my eyes uh, as we talk, Michael, that you have a chapter here, chapter five, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Santa's helpers. I once heard that there was some dark images of the anti-Santa, and you described some of these. I almost find it hard to believe that, as raised as a Catholic, I never heard this, and you can describe to us something called cert and also a being, I guess, called Krampus. I mean, and it goes on and on. Who, uh, who were these entities? And uh, I hope they're not real. Oh, it, it, one of the biggest surprises in researching this book was the dark side of Christmas. Yes. Uh, the, you know, there are stories of witches and goblins and elves, which were scary creatures before they were tamed to make toys for Santa. Um, you know, when, when Dickens has Ebenezer Scrooge visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. he, he's not pulling that out of a hat. He's drawing from a very long and frightening tradition of ghost stories. So mm-hmm. you've got that in the background. But then specifically, when St. Nicholas visited children on the vigil of his feast to give gifts, which would be December 5th, He was often accompanied by a very spooky sidekick, and often it was a demon. Uh, In Austria and Germany, it's Krampus. In the Czech Republic, uh, it's a demon named Chert, which is actually just the Czech word for demon or devil. And um, they would often be chained. Sometimes an angel would be the one holding the chains. And it seems very strange. And you're thinking, this is good for children? 
but it actually does show children how St. Nicholas, as your patron, has your back. That God has blessed him with an ability to subdue evil. Amazing. Yeah, this is so amazing. It's so mind-boggling because as a Catholic, and again, I keep repeating that because it was very much a kind of a blindfolder when you're little. I mean, everything, there wasn't any talk of the dark side, of course. It was always the good, which I guess as a child helped me get through, you know, without hearing any of those dark side stories. But one thing you mentioned, you corrected me. I said cert, and you say chert. But the interesting thing is, that I was wondering, because I'll never touch a cert mint again uh, for bad breath, <laughs> if that's something. But on a lighter note. I hear you. <laughs> no, this is quite fascinating. And on the other side of the coin, you describe, this is amazing, St. Lucy. I never knew this. She's the patron saint of eyes and vision. Is this also a, a connection to the, to the Christmas story, too? There's a, there's a connection with her involving what? The, the, this holiday of, and the spirit of Christmas. So her feast day is on December 13th. And especially in Scandinavian countries, but also on almost the other side of the globe, her, her native uh, Syracuse, Italy, she is held in very high regard. Hmm. I think the reason why she is loved in Scandinavian countries is that before the reform of the Gregorian calendar, the reform of the Julian calendar in the, what was it, 1700s, yes. 1500s, in the old Julian calendar, December 13th was the winter solstice. So there was an association with light. We were getting longer days. And then Lucy's name means light in Latin. So you've got this happy coincidence, all kinds of light customs going on. And then she is the patron of light, which is, you know, the sort of uh, patron of the eyes, rather, which is sort of the window into the mind or the body. So all these things sort of tied together and made her feast day a very festive one. It's beautiful. You know, I'm going to take the liberty, uh, Michael, of injecting a poem that I had read from one of the shows that we were doing and still proudly do on Coast to Coast AM, of course, the nation. And they asked us to do this CD for Christmas many, many years ago. So I'm somewhere in between one of the guys from one of the rock bands and uh, Pat Boone, I guess, uh, and we're somewhat in there. But I wanted to put inject this, and it's apropos right now, it's a Christmas poem that I read about children being naughty and nice. And what better time to implant this in here? Because you're talking about things that uh, I never knew about, about not just about the story of St. Nicholas and then Santa Claus, but also some of these other darker forces out there. But it's an interesting read nonetheless. It is said long ago that children from around the world would wake up on Christmas Day and find to their delight the gift of toys the generosity from a man named Claus. But Claus thought that none of the children would ever know where the toys came from, and that being okay with him. But his kindly deeds, that made so many children happy, would carry to far lands and not go unrecognized. So for miles and miles in every direction, people were talking of Claus and his wonderful gifts to children. The sweet kindness of his work would remind folks of their respect for a man so gentle-natured that he loved to devote his life to pleasing the helpless little ones. Therefore, the inhabitants of every city and village had been eagerly watching for the coming of Claus. Stories of beautiful playthings were told to the children to keep them patient and contented. When, on the morning following the trip of Claus with his deer, the little ones came running to their parents with the pretty toys they had found. 
and asked from whence they came, there was but one reply to the question. The good claws must have been here, my darlings, for his are the only toys in all the world. But how did he get in? asked the children. At this, the fathers shook their heads, being themselves unable to understand how Claus had gained admittance to their homes. But the mothers, watching the glad faces of their dear ones, whispered that the good Claus was no mortal man, but assuredly a saint. And they blessed his name for the happiness he had bestowed upon the children. A saint, said one with bowed head, has no need to unlock doors if it pleases him to enter our homes. And from then on, when a child was naughty or disobedient, its mother would say, You must pray to the good Santa Claus for forgiveness, for naughty children will receive no more pretty toys. But Santa Claus himself would not have approved this speech. You see, he brought toys to the children because they were little and helpless, and because he loved them. He knew that the best of children were sometimes naughty, and that the naughty ones were often good. It's the way with children the world over. And that is how our Claus became Santa Claus and enshrined himself as a saint in the hearts of the people. But I got to ask you about this. Describe to us, this is maybe I'm missing this from the interview and I wanted to hear it. Describe the transgression of how St. Nicholas then moves on to become Santa Claus. I think everybody's interested to hear that story. That is such a bizarre transformation. I mean, think about it. You have a celibate bishop living in the Mediterranean, and he somehow becomes married, living in the North Pole. Elves are at his beck and call to make toys. He's driving a reindeer with sleigh, uh, or vice versa. It's just bizarre. So what we, from what we can tell, we owe a series of American authors from the early 1800s for all of this. So yeah. authors like Washington Irving and Clement Clark Moore were living in New York City, and the Dutch had given the city Santa Claus and kept that custom alive when it was New Amsterdam. So they took these customs from the Dutch about St. Nicholas, and then, from what we can tell, they may have taken elements from Norse mythology mm. about Thor and Woden. Thor, for example, after whom our Thursday is named, was the god of fire, and so he wore red. He was associated with the chimney. He drove a chariot in the sky pulled by two goats, and when the goats uh, uh, stepped on the clouds, it made thunder. And so they took these Norse elements, they took the legends of St. Nicholas, they put them in a blender, and they flipped on the switch. And that's how we got Santa Claus. <laughs> that's amazing. And the timeline in which you described it very quickly, this also happened because we don't know, as a celibate person, St. Nicholas, he transforms himself into what? A jolly, happy family man with a set of reindeer and a sleigh. And he's what? Mimicking, as you're describing to us, what? The story of Thor, I guess. This is also like the modern-day version of what Thor would be as we get into Santa Claus with his chariot and reindeer and the whole nine yards. That's interesting. That really is. This oh, it's is quite, quite a stretch. <laughs> kind of fascinating book here. You know, in the time allotted today, I'm bouncing all over the place on purpose here, but I think it's so important. 
the Christmas tree, something as simple, that iconic symbol. Stories about that. I mean, the origin of it, uh, I would imagine people just go and in the old days, we went out to the forest, we chopped a tree down and we planted it where? In our house, outside. But you've got some fascinating theories of the origin of the Christmas tree and the connection to Christmas. Well, that was a big surprise for me. Uh, I didn't realize that there were myths about Christmas myths. And I grew up being told that the Christmas tree was a pagan Yuletide holdover. And indeed, there are some pagan Yuletide holdovers. Uh, Mistletoe is one of them. Having evergreens in your house is another. But it turns out that the Christmas tree is a quintessentially Christian invention. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. That's an amazing story, but you describe in the book, and I don't want to give everything away because I want people to read this, and especially what they should do is get a copy of this as they're sitting around the fireplace or just sitting with family. And this is interesting, except for certain chapters I probably wouldn't read to the children. But the beauty of the Christmas tree and the story of mistletoe and many, many other chapters could be read aloud. But I'm, I'm reading this, that the symbology of red may come from a connection between Adam and Eve and that sacred apple that was eaten. Uh, that's also uh, in your book, right? Well, we, it's, it is interesting that red and green have become the colors of Christmas. But in terms of the worship of the church, it's a very strange thing because the colors during December, like we were talking about a moment ago, are violet or purple. Mm-hmm. The color that the priest wears during the Christmas season is white. So where does the red and the green come from? One theory is that it's holly. It could be the Christmas tree with its greenness and its red balls, but it could also be holly. And the reason why holly was chosen as a Christmas decoration is that it reminded Christians of the crucifixion. The prickly leaves recalled the crown of thorns, and the red berries recalled the drops of blood that our Lord would shed for humanity. And so the irony of Christmas having red and green as its colors is that it was inspired by a plant that reminded Christians of the crucifixion, not the nativity. Wow. There's so many, I mean, if you were to plot this like on a, on a big blackboard in a, in a classroom, there's so many sidelines to this whole story that are so amazing. And because of your research, I mean, I always thought pretty much everything was linear. You know, you go from the Star of Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, and you go along this linear line, but you've got all these side fascinating stories from St. Nicholas, how he became Santa, how all these different saints, some necessarily, as we talk about these goblins and other dark Santas <laughs> come into the picture. But here's one, and I don't like reading from someone's book here. You wrote it. But the chrysanthemum, and I'll quote here, and I say this, when the Magi reached Bethlehem, they got lost in the dark until Melchior discovered a chrysanthemum and picked it up. Immediately, the doors of a nearby stable flew open, revealing the Holy Family. The significance of this flower in Christmas, uh, I think I've said some of it, but what you write is, is fascinating. Please, please tell us more. Oh, yeah. I, I, I figured, as a fan of the Magi, that you would be drawn to the chrysanthemum. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's amazing. It just keeps going on and on and on. There are a lot of uh, wonderful legends about the Magi, by the way. Um, there are different gift givers throughout the world, and in Italy, the gift giver is an old woman named Bafana. Hmm. And she has a connection to the Magi. When they were on their way to Bethlehem, 
they stayed in her house. I guess she had an ancient Airbnb, <laughs> and uh, they were amazed at what a great housekeeper she was. And indeed, she was. She was extremely fastidious. So they were so impressed with her hospitality, they said, you should come join us. And so she said, great, uh, I would love to meet the Messiah, oh, but I, I just need to clean up first. And <laughs> so they took off, and she cleaned in the hopes of catching up with them, but she spent too long cleaning up. And uh, when she went out to find them, she couldn't. And so she has spent the rest of history looking for the Christ child. Wow, what a story. See, that's totally amazing. And this is Michael P. Foldy Research, ladies and gentlemen, that talks about in so much more detail than we have time for here, why we kiss under the mistletoe, Christmas traditions explained. But I want to just ask you a few more questions here, that, and maybe really not questions, they're just observations that I find fascinating. Uh, I want to get to the main part of this interview, and it's the title of the book. Tell us as much as you want to about mistletoe and why we kiss under the mistletoe. This, folks, I think, just really knocks it out of the park. Well, the short answer is the Druids. The Druids thought mistletoe was an amazing plant. It was green in the dead of winter. It grew without ever touching the soil. It had berries in the dead of winter, and not only berries, but white berries, which is relatively rare. And so they um, treated the mistletoe with great reverence. When they harvested it, they went through this elaborate ritual. It could never touch the ground. And they often made peace under the mistletoe. So Christians, when Christianity came to those lands, they added their signature greeting, which is, of course, the kiss. Mm. The kiss of peace is a very biblical way of exchanging Christian peace. Wow. So the Christmas season doesn't just end. I mean, many people think it ends, obviously, the day after Christmas, and maybe in my mind, and maybe others, it's become too commercialized, but the true spirit of Christmas, as we read in your book, has much to do and not much to do about buying something. It's more about adoration, love, sharing, kindness, and doing things like that. But what happens? It goes on all the way, as you describe in your book, Epiphany, and then we talk about even a connection beyond that into uh, the month of February. Short answer on that. That's correct. And that's one of the, one of the downsides of the modern Christmas is that we keep starting the Christmas season earlier and earlier. You know, this year I saw jack-o'-lanterns and Christmas trees side-by-side side for sale in the store. Yes. We're, we're, we don't even wait for the day after Thanksgiving anymore. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the downsides of that is you, the more you stretch that out, by the time you get to December 25th, you're practically sick of Christmas, which is unfortunate. So I do think the older model was better, which was, hey, let's still have joy. There is joy in Advent, but let's focus on restraint and preparation. Then, when Christmas Day comes, we pull out all the stops, and we observe the 12 days of Christmas, this period of unbroken merriment. Between December 25th and the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th, and like you said, in, in some cases, they found ways of extending the party even beyond January 6th. I think that's a better way to do it. My final question, and I'd like to do this again with you, and I'll ask you again about a new book maybe coming down the pike, but simply from your own words, you know, from the heart, what can Christians do to recapture the true spirit uh, of Christmas? 
Well, actually, I would, uh, just what I said, uh, I think, obviously, we keep the religious meaning in mind, first and foremost, but also observing the season in a way in which there is a long period of, you know, restraint and joy, but then to really focus on the jubilance of Christmas and meditate on the mysteries of the Nativity for those 12 days. Michael Foley, you're an awesome guest, and we look forward to having you again. And any indication of something, a sneak preview on this show, a little uh, news-breaking thing here that might be coming down as far as the next uh, book title? Absolutely. I've got a couple things in the pipeline. One is a cookbook. I have teamed up with Father Leo Padalinghug, <laughs> who is a very renowned chef. He has his wow. own show on uh, cable TV. Mm-hmm. We are doing Dining with the Saints. How about uh, that? So we will be providing wonderful recipes for the feast days of the church here. And he and I are also hosting a riverboat pilgrimage cruise in mm-hmm. April of next year. Awesome. Where we will go through, we will cruise down the Douro River through Portugal and Spain. And uh, it's going to be great fun, and we invite everyone to join us. Is there a website that people can go to, Michael, that uh, you suggest? Absolutely. So go to drinkingwiththesaints.com. That will give you information about the cruise. And you can also like and follow us on Facebook. We have a Drinking with the Saints page and Instagram, which is Drinking Saints. Thank you, Michael Foley. Stay on the line with us as we go to that heartbreak. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we wish each and every one of you, as I'm sure Michael and his family do, a most merry, joyous, and healthy. Merry Christmas and a great, healthy, and happy 2023. You're listening to me, Steve Cates, the Dr. Sky Experience, here on America's iconic radio station. Again, Talk Radio 77, WABC, out of New York City and around the world on WABCRadio.com, the crown jewel of talk radio, with great guests from the realms normally of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, celebrity guests in the mix, and very many guests from American exceptionalism. Thanks to our special guest, Michael P. Foley. We'll see you next week, ladies and gentlemen, with more adventures. As Dr. Sky always reminds everybody, always remember to keep your eyes to the skies as I'm simply your navigator on the highway to the heaven. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.